Hello, audiobook fans. Welcome to another episode of Harper Audio Presents. I'm Andrew Caberlin. Spring has sprung, love is in the air, so today we're going to focus on all things romance. Coming up, we're going to chat with 2019 Audie-nominated romance narrator Mary Jane Wells about her work on romance audiobooks, her tips for breaking into the world of narration, and more. Plus, since she's narrated so many books set in the Regency romance realm, Mary is going to take a vocab quiz on obscure words and terms from 1800s England. But before we can get to that, we're going to start today's episode by chatting with the New York Times bestselling author of the Ravenel series, Lisa Klepis. Her latest, Devil's Daughter, is available now in audio, read by none other than Mary Jane Wells. Lisa tells us about her experience hearing Mary read her books back to her, how she jumps between writing historical and contemporary romance. Uh, We get into how Lisa found herself a published author at only 21 years old. It's all fascinating stuff. Lisa also subjects herself to the self-awareness game. And listeners, I hope you've already eaten because these particular clips will make you hungry. I guarantee it. Without further ado, let's get to Lisa Klepis. So first, I want to say congratulations on Hello Stranger being nominated for the Audio Award for Best Romance. That's very exciting on our end. I hope it's as exciting for you as well. Oh, it, it is super exciting. And, you know, I feel like it's really more, uh, the, the credit is more for Mary Jane Wells than me because mm-hmm. she interpreted that book just wonderfully it was a huge cast of characters and so many of them had um different accents irish welsh so you know upper class british lower class so she she's like (laughs) a woman of a thousand voices she's just remarkable i think that's probably what draws her uh or or like books like yours draw her because i think she loves that challenge of having like which accent am i going to throw on today (laughs) exactly and and it's I think I think when someone does it well, narrates a book well, it's like everything else. They, they make it look easy, and uh, uh, but it you know it's it's not. It's uh, really incredibly difficult to modulate your voice in a way that sounds natural and that people can follow when you're going from male to female characters. Um, in other words, if you have a male character with a really deep voice you can hear sometimes where a narrator is really straining to try to achieve that. And, and she, she doesn't, she just sort of gently moderates her voice or modulates it to where you understand it's a man with a deep voice, but she's not, you know, killing her own throat doing it. Yeah. It, it, it never ceases to amaze me because I'm always stuck in that deep male voice. Uh, register. <laughs> I, can't, I can't get out of it. <laughs> well, well, the the problem can be in reverse too, because like way way in the past when I had a contemporary book um, made into an audio, we had a male narrator, and he he did such a nice job on parts of it, but whenever it was a female voice, he tried to do it in this really high upper register, and the poor man. It not only could you tell that it wasn't comfortable for him, but you know, there are times where it can sound sort of like a parody or a satire. And Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's it's one of those things where if you make that choice early, well, then uh, you're stuck with it and you got to <laughs> gotta go through the entire <laughs> recording. 
Um, well, yeah, you wonder, he probably had to rest his throat like one of the Bee Gees. You know, they always sang in falsetto. <laughs> like, one of those Gibbs. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. um, so audiobooks in general right now are, are booming as an industry. Um, how would you pitch uh, your books to, to your fans who maybe have not made the jump to audio? What would you tell them to, to come on over to this side? Well, you know, what, what my friends and I have experienced because we've all started listening to a lot more audiobooks is that you can do so many things and enjoy a book at the same time. You know, you can exercise, walk, do your laundry. And so not only are you being enter- entertained, but you're also learning something. And with romance audiobooks, I find that when the narrator is really good, like uh, Mary Jane Wells, that when she takes you on an emotional journey, it seems um, amplified because it's it's auditory as opposed to just reading on the page. There, there's something that a good narrator imparts that um, that really adds to the story so that it's like watching a movie in your head. So outside of the world of romance, uh, what are you listening to? Well, I've been listening to a lot of um, self-help and really trying to, um, uh, you know, trying to explore ways in which I can improve myself and, and improve my life. You know, I, I'm in my 50s now, and it seems to be a time where you really take stock of who you are and what you've done and what, what you have left to accomplish and so, you know, I really enjoy that genre of books on audio. Historic um, nonfiction, historical nonfiction, I don't, I would have thought I would enjoy a lot because I love reading that, but it's just too mm-hmm. many facts, you know, for me. Like, I can't remember the fact, and I want to start taking notes while I'm listening to one of those. So, um, so really, besides fiction, it, it would really be the self-help genre. But, but how wonderful to be able to hear that while you're doing something else. Exactly. It's funny you mentioned the the thing about the the facts. Before I was working in publishing, I was working uh, in radio journalism, and that was one of those things they would always tell us: like you got to cut out. You can you can do one fact, and that's it. Because once you've heard one fact on the radio or on audio, your yeah. brain just shuts off. It does. It does. Yep. I I understand. So there's that that popular stigma. People hate it when they hear their own voice recorded. Uh, I'm wondering if if you've listened to audiobooks of your titles and and if you have any kind of similar feelings when you hear your own words read out loud to you. Oh, I love hearing my books read out loud <laughs> because well, it's it's you know, it's hard when you live with a book and you you're you're constantly revising it and seeing it. You you never really know how it turns out until later on. And so by the time I get to listen to an audiobook, it's it's I've had enough time and space to be able to tell how the book really turned out and, and which things worked and didn't work. But then there's also the added element of what the narrator brings to it. And there are times when Mary Jane will, um, or Mary, will, will say something <laughs> in with a different inflection or a different emphasis than I would have. And it really makes the whole line different and great. And so it's really fun to hear the choices that the narrator makes in in my own lines so yeah it's fun it's really fun so a lot of authors in the romance genre they tend to stick to one very specific subgenre. but you've bounced around between historical and contemporary so is there is the preparation or execution noticeably different for you from genre to genre 
it is so different to write historical and contemporary because the the voice itself, the author's voice, has to be so drastically different. Um, our modern way of speaking is so much more efficient than than people who lived in earlier times. It's it's not quite as beautiful. Meaning we you know we use fewer words. We we don't stress elegance of language or expression. You know we we're communicating more purely really but but it's it's not as pretty so historical writing and historical dialogue is so much prettier and i i really enjoy that with contemporaries i have to really strip my voice my author's voice down to to make it very clean and and efficient um but there's also an element of uh research that that again i really enjoy with historical because in this earlier time uh you know, everything about the way they lived was so different. And the Victorian era in particular is a time of such incredible change. Travel and communication were just um, so different. For for example, when they, you had the railway come in, uh, mm-hmm. before the railway, everything that you ate, everything that you wore, everything in your house, pretty much came from about 20 miles around your home. Wow. And... <laughs> When the railway appeared, then then all of a sudden you were starting to get things, you know, bricks for your house from a different part of England. Uh, you were able to get books. You were able to get foods imported from different places. And so it, it really changed people's lives incredibly. And, um, you know, they struggled with the pace of change. Um, you know, another big example is the telegraph, you know, it, uh, before the telegraph. It took about 10 weeks to get a letter from England to India and, um, and get a response. And in the, after the telegraph, it took maybe four minutes to get a response. So, so they struggled with life speeding up so much. And I, I'm fascinated by how they were grappling with these changes. In, in a way, it sort of echoes some of, the, some of the struggles we're facing right now because our society is changing mm-hmm. so much. Oh, absolutely. Can I ask, did you always want to be a writer? You, you started writing at a pretty young age, and we'll get to that in a moment, but I'm yeah. curious if, if there was another dream before that. Yeah, it, it was always writing, and I think part of that came from the fact that I was one of the latchkey kid generation people. So, um, so you know, we, we spent a lot of time entertaining ourselves. Uh, sometimes that was good, sometimes not. But, uh, but I, I spent a lot of my time, uh, we, we lived in Massachusetts, at the top of this rent house. We lived in this old four square rent house with an attic where all the heat in the house would gather in the winter. So it was this warm, cozy space, single light bulb up there. And I would just take a pile of books up there and read for hours. And it was just transporting. And my imagination just seemed to take me, you know, a thousand miles away or more. And I loved it. So I think books just were, were such a huge part of my life that the, the writing stories and then writing books became really natural. And then when I went away to camp, I think I was about 12 years old, uh, I had a pound of um, writing paper. You, you could buy it by the pound at the local store. Mm-hmm. And so I, I bought a pound of paper. I was going to write all these letters to my friends and family. And instead, I started writing a novel. And I was so fascinated by this that I kept writing and writing, writing, came home for the summer, continued. And then after that, every single summer, I would write an entire novel. 
and um, finally just about to graduate from college, uh, I got one of them accepted. Yeah. So, so you had your first uh, novel published at 21 years old. How does that happen? <laughs> like, I'm thinking about like who I was at 21. I wasn't doing anything like remotely close to to being as important as that. So how how did you make that happen? Oh well, thank you. Well, it's you know <laughs> it, it's kind of funny because looking back, there were a lot of things that I was writing about in terms of you know, very adult men and women relationships that I just didn't even understand yet. You know, a lot of the (laughs) issues, a lot of the feelings, a lot of those things I hadn't even experienced. And so it it was purely an act of imagination. Um, So I think, I think probably I was published a little too early, but I'm, you know, I'm glad that I was because I was able to make a living at it right off. And that Yeah, better than too late. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But I I once met Barbara Taylor Bradford. And so she was just elegant, gracious, very nice. But I asked her, of course, what what advice would you have for a novelist who's just starting out? And she said, don't write another novel until you're 40. And so (laughs) and she she meant it very nicely. You know, she she. So at the time, I was like, well, I don't like that advice very much. And uh, and now I see exactly what she meant, which is, you know, go have adventures, you know, go Go do things so you'll have more to, to draw upon when you write. And so eventually everything caught up. You know, I had I had adventures, I had a life, and I think my writing has improved a lot. But I mm-hmm. I think there there is a danger in being published so early that you know you spend more time in a room in front of your computer than than out there in the world living. So is that the advice that you would give? You know, if you were in a time machine and could see yourself at twenty one, would you give that same advice of don't don't write again until you're 40. <laughs> but yeah, I, I wouldn't have said 40, but I would definitely <laughs> I would definitely say have more adventures. I would say that to any anybody who who's in their 20s and is young. Have more adventures. Don't be afraid of risk. Don't be afraid of failure. And and I guess I guess the other thing is I would tell myself and and anyone else who's young, uh, don't chase success because People are so full of, you know, advice like, well, don't do that because you might fail or mm-hmm. or that is proven not to make money. You know, go chase a job or go do something that that you're you, you're guaranteed to make a lot of money. And I think I think chasing success and chasing money um, may not lead to that. I, I think I mean, n- nobody hears their daughter right out of college say, I'm going to be a romance novelist and says, oh, yeah, 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 you're going to make so much money. Because the truth is, it's it's uh, long, difficult hours at, at the at the beginning. You're not going to make that much money, but if you're passionate about it and you love it, eventually, yes, you're going to be successful and, and be really happy. the The point is, chase what makes you happy. Chase the things that excite you, and success will come from that. Yeah, I, I feel like that tends to to be the case for the most successful people that I know. Is that they they just get good at doing what they're passionate about first and then uh success tends to find those people exactly exactly Mm -hmm. so if uh if i took away your pen from you if you were forced into retirement tomorrow you had a career-ending injury uh whatever that would be for a writer uh (laughs) what what career would you pursue i think i mean it would have to be something creative i i am definitely on the the ADD spectrum, do you know, you know where they call mm-hmm, it creative yeah. brain as well, where, where you've got all these ideas flying around your head and the collision of these ideas 
creates new things. And so I, I have that kind of brain. So I will always have to come up with stories to tell, um, something to create. And um, I don't know, I've, I've always thought if I couldn't have my career, I would have loved to have had Nora Ephron's career. Um, she yeah. actually also went to Wellesley College where I went. And so I've, I've admired her since since I first you know heard of her and, and saw her work. But especially later on when she started making movies and directing them, she, she did that because the first couple of movies that she wrote that someone else directed, she was so persnickety about the details and, and yay for her, uh, that she was like, well, I'm, I'm just going to have to do this myself. And so I, I think that she had a pretty wonderful life. I, I would like that life. Yeah, I'm always sad that there's not going to be more movies from her. I know, I yeah. know. And there's only so many times we can all watch When Harry Met Sally. And, you know, well, we speak for yourself. I can, <laughs> I can watch it on a weekly basis. You know. I know. I know. Yeah, it's, it's such a nice thing because my, my daughter, who's 18, my daughter Lindsay and I can, can share that. And, and you know, with, with friends sometimes it's – well, no, even my husband and son still laugh at those movies. So I, I wish they were mm-hmm. still doing those. I'm hoping that it will kind of come back into vogue. I don't know. Yeah, uh, we'll see. It's it's. I know Netflix and other streaming places are kind of the ones taking the forefront for romance movies at this point. So I think I think that they will continue to be uh, popular and have a resurgence, but maybe not in the traditional theater sense. I think you're you right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. So what is the the most difficult aspect of writing romance specifically that authors of other genres might not have to deal with? Oh, um, without a question, the the purpose of a romance novel, the predominant purpose of a romance novel uh, is to elicit emotion, to take the reader on an emotional journey. And so, you know, when you are an author of another kind of book, genre where it's more plot heavy, um, I don't think you have to worry as much about what, what is it about this scene that's going to elicit emotion in my reader but you always have to be conscious of that when you're writing romance. And so sometimes when you hear a reader who's talking about a novel that just left them flat, they're like, well, it's just, it, it, you know, I don't much care. I'm never going to read it again. I, I don't know why it didn't work. It just didn't. It's because the author failed to, to put the things in that really pull at the heartstrings and really push those emo- emotional buttons. So that's the job. Yeah. That is the job, I guess. Mm-hmm. That you kind of like live and die by that. Uh, yes, I'm always amazed by the sheer volume of output that romance writers can do. We know where there there's other genres where someone will say, "Well, you know, I'm going to write one book every like ten years," but then you could probably do ten books in a year if you really had to. You know, I'm I'm always amazed by that. I am too. I am too. And I think um, you know we all have different methods and styles. Um, I've slowed down, especially in the past two or three years, because I'm struggling with perfectionism where, you know, I want <laughs> I want every scene to be perfect and every bit of research to be spot on. And it's such an intuitive process. So you never know that a scene is complete until you've gone over it and over it. And it just kind of clicks in your mind. You're like, yep, that mm-hmm. pushes the buttons. It feels right now. And um, so sometimes you can write a scene right off and it's just magical and it just works right away. And then other times it's like, well, no, it's, it's flat. What if I took this part away and added another part? What if I embellished this? And so I think this intuitive 
process, you know, has really slowed me down. But, you know, thankfully I've got a really wonderful editor who, you know, lets me, <laughs> lets me work on it until it feels right because she understands mm-hmm. it's, it's a labor of love. You, you mentioned the research. Uh, and I know that you, you must have to do a lot of research, particularly for the Ravenel series. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, what's the like most interesting or out there thing that you've discovered through oh, uh, your research? Well, the, the previous book, the, the book that was released last year, Hello Stranger, was about mm-hmm. a female physician in the 1870s in England. And it, it turns out there, there was only one um, that this... Um, <laughs> Uh, woman, uh, Elizabeth Garrett Anderson, um, wanted to become a physician slash surgeon, and uh, women weren't allowed to um, in Britain Britain at the time. So mm-hmm. she learned French, went and, and got her medical degree in France, came back to England, and then found a loophole that would allow her to take the exams that then would uh, allow her to be certified. So once she took them and became a member of the British Medical Association, they changed the rules so that no other women could get in for like 20 years. So, <laughs> so I wanted her to, my character, based on her, to be believable. Mm-hmm. And so I did a lot of Victorian medical research. Oh, my goodness. Oh, I that's got to be terrifying. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, the, I mean, yeah, yes, the leeches, but leeches were nothing compared to so many of the procedures and the, the strange gadgetry that they invented to, to try to help people. And um, one of the more interesting things were the um, methods of blood transfusion because they knew oh, that boy. it worked. <laughs> it, yeah, because it worked sometimes. And yeah. then other times the patient would die in incredible agony and agony like within an hour. Yeah, you and, just got to roll the dice and yes, see what yes, happens. Exactly. And I mean, like you, I mean, you had to be almost dead before you would allow someone to, to do this to you because, you know, yeah, roulette. Mm-hmm. And so they, because they thought maybe it was just the method of transfusion, like maybe this machine that we're using to get blood from one person to another, maybe I need a different kind of gadget. Maybe I need to spin the blood around a lot. Maybe I need to add something to the blood or whatever. So they, they thought the difficulty was, was mechanical. And so there must have been a hundred different blood transfusion devices that, that I learned about and saw diagrams and, and photographs of. And then eventually in 1901, an Austrian scientist discovered that um, it was actually blood types, that there was such a thing as different types of blood, and that's why sometimes the transfusion worked and sometimes it didn't. So, oh, yeah. Thank so God they, for that guy. I yeah. know. <laughs> I know. It was, I mean, at one point, they actually used milk as, as a substitute for blood. And, oh, my uh, gosh. Yeah, which was strange, yeah. but, but bizarrely, it kind of halfway worked. Like, the patient did not die, and it allowed them to stay alive long enough mm-hmm. for their own system to be... Uh, producing enough blood, but um, and they had the really strong can... bones after that too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> yes. So yeah, weird weirdness, strange. Um, speaking of strangeness, <laughs> uh, is an interesting segue. Uh, you're very very <laughs> popular, and I know you have a very dedicated legion of fans. So what's the most like unique fan experience or encounter that you've had? Oh, you know, I. I it's not weird, but but it was unexpected. Um, mm-hmm. I wrote a book several years ago. It was a contemporary romance, and it was called Blue-Eyed Devil. And it was about a young woman who had been in um, an abusive relationship. Um, actually, a very um, intelligent woman brought up in a, a privileged 
home. And mm-hmm. so she ends up in this, in this abusive marriage and, um, and then gets out of it. But after that does not trust men, does not want to have a relationship. You know, she has a lot of scars and wounds. So, so the entire book is really about, uh, finding a new love, learning to trust again, learning to, you know, enjoy a full relationship the way she wasn't able mm-hmm. to before. And so, but I went into a lot of the reasons why, um, some women are unfortunate enough to, to end up in these relationships and others aren't. And, um, you know, it usually means you um, don't have a lot of self-esteem, and it usually means that you feel like you deserve to be treated badly on some level, and then you're more open to relationship with someone who gives off these signals. So when I was on uh, tour after writing this book, and then and for a few years afterwards, just when I was signing books, I would have readers come up to me, and it, they would be very intense emotional exchanges they they would cry they would tell me how much the book meant to them because it shed light on a situation they were in or someone who they cared about were in and uh it it was really um striking to me that that i could write something that would touch people that deeply and in that way it it humbled me really so i mean that that was a real gift to me and it makes me aware that when i write something in this little tiny office you know, with no one else here, it, it speaks to a lot of people and hopefully will will help someone, you know, have a better life afterward or at least, you know, make them feel glad that they spent that seven or eight dollars on my book. Yeah, that's fantastic. That's much better than like some really strange fan story. So I'm, ha- I'm happy you went with that. <laughs> Thanks. And something on the other end of the spectrum. Yeah, exactly. So I've been noticing the trend in romance recently where subgenres just keep kind of like folding and folding in on themselves to get highly specific. What do you think the next big subgenre is going to be in like a year or two? You know, I'm not, I'm not a really, um, an expert on looking into the future. Sometimes I've been surprised by subgenres that, that pop up and, and last for a while, but I mm-hmm. do feel like in general that there's going to be so many more inclusive stories, stories that have, um, um, more gay characters, you know, LGBT, mm-hmm. you know, more diversity. And so I feel like that's wonderful because the more unique voices and the more unique kinds of stories we can bring into the genre, the better. So, so in general, just, just more inclusiveness is going to happen in diversity. Uh, so your latest is devil's daughter. Mm-hmm. Uh, so when you are working within a series that's been ongoing for a while, where do you start? How different is that than starting from page one of a new timeline? Well, usually I start um, by envisioning one or both characters uh, and, and thinking, what what are they most afraid of? What are the things that they long for? And those two things, fear and longing, are always a good way to start a romance novel because <laughs> it, it, it drives you to make changes in your life. It drives you to be open to things. And so, you know, because the story has to be a journey, you you have to bring them from a place that has no emotional safety in it to a place where they they are with someone else and they do they do feel safe. They feel like they can trust this person and that their needs are finally being met. And it's, it's not that the other person will solve all of your problems, but more that they'll just accept you for exactly who you are. And 
I don't know why it seems so hard to find that even in real life, but it, it's, it's a process, especially when you're dating, you're getting to know people. Sometimes some quality that you have, they're like, well, that's a deal breaker. <laughs> it's not going to work. <laughs> and, and so you, you keep searching until you find a person who says, yes, I have no problem with you eating half my dessert or. <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, oh, exactly. No. I'll get a second dessert if you want so we can both have some, but you don't. Oh, That's yeah. a good solution. That's a good solution. Exactly. But you find you find someone who will let you do you and be happy with it. And mm-hmm. so that's whether it's a historical or a contemporary romance, that's that's the goal is you bring them from lack of acceptance and, and lack of, of other person to a, a healthy, accepting relationship. Was there any new challenge or anything new that you learned about yourself? while writing Devil's Daughter? Let me see. Uh, new challenge. You know, I I think when I explore the idea of um, a, a hero with a really difficult past, tortured by it, haunted by it, and feeling unworthy, that I use a lot of my own regrets, my own fears about, you know, things that, that I've done or haven't done in the past. And it seems to, it seems to be almost sort of a psychological working out of problems for me as well. And so uh, poor Wes Ravenel, who's the hero of Devil's Daughter, mm-hmm. is, is really struggling with this feeling of I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy of this really fabulous, amazing person. And even though everyone around him reassures him, yes, it's fine. She will accept you. You haven't done anything that bad. It's really not okay until he feels it's okay until he thinks, you know what? I'm, I'm good enough. I'm going to step up to the plate here and and go for this relationship and stop uh, beating myself up about it. But that's a, that's a process for the hero. And I, you know, I think for me, it's a process I have to go through over and over again, just to reaffirm that everything's okay. Mm -hmm. I also, I love, all of your characters' names. They're all very like strong and dynamic. And a lot of times Thank I you. find myself wishing that I had as dynamic a name as a character <laughs> in a romance novel. Mine's a bit too clunky. Um, oh, I know. Well, yours, yours is a good, <laughs> it's, yeah, I, I have the same kind of, it's a good name. You know, everyone knows Elisa, you know, so I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. I find, I feel like you may have had the same issue that I do where people will be saying your name and get to the last name and just sort of trail off because they're afraid of getting it wrong. <laughs> it's true. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I may, I may, I, I fantasized about going back in time and changing my name to like Jessica Thornhart or something, you know, something like really romantic. <laughs> but unfortunately, no, no, I, I have no idea why it didn't occur to me. I could have chosen a really pretty pseudonym, but. No, you could change. You can make a, a late pivot. You can make it happen if you wanted to. You know, it's, um, your editor is listening now, being like, "Oh, please don't do that." <laughs> I'm just, I'm just gonna let it be. You know, it's yeah. it, people. I guess look at this weird last name, and now it kind of stands out among all the thorn hearts. Maybe I don't know. So, looking forward, what's next on the docket for you, other than changing your name? <laughs> um, I'm going to finish the last Ravenel novel, and I'm the hero is a railway magnet and so hugely successful driven but really cut off from his emotions really disconnected so um so it's it's not that he's like a a, a zombie or or, you know flat or anything but it's just that Mm -hmm. he just doesn't want to be open to 
all the vulnerability of a relationship. And um, so that's exciting because it's, it's always fun to take that kind of hero and see what you need to do to turn him around to a giving, loving, romantic partner. And so he wants to marry this young woman because she's beautiful, she's aristocratic, and she would be a trophy to him. And mm-hmm. this is uh, Lady Cassandra, who's the last unmarried Ravenel. Yes. And her dream is to uh, have a cozy home and a loving husband and children and to you know really have intimacy in this cozy, wonderful setting. So each one, I'm, I'm going to have it so that they have to get married and early on in the novel. And so you put together these two people with very different goals and very different um, abilities, really, and then see how they work it out. And that, to me, is really fun and challenging. There's going to be a lot of conflict and a lot of humor, too, because relationships are really funny, even even when they're not working. And sometimes they're they're funny to everyone who's not the two people in it. <laughs> yes, <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so let me ask, how many, what's the number? How many total books have you written now? I think, okay, I, I would have to go count it, but I think I'm coming up on number 50. So, oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. It's a big milestone. Something? So that's yeah. thousands upon thousands upon probably hundreds of thousands of words that you've written. Yeah, um, it, it, it so is. So today, today we're going to test your memory on all of those words. Oh, no. It's time for us to now play the self-awareness <laughs> game. Oh, no. <laughs> so so uh, all the following clips are from audiobooks that you have written. These are your own words. Uh, they are short, just a paragraph or sometimes even less, and they can be from anywhere within your books to make it a bit more difficult. So... Uh, as a romance author, I'm sure you're familiar with the meet cute. So today, we've pulled clips that qualify as meet cutes in the sense that they are all clips where characters talk about different meats that they are about to have at a meal. Oh. So I hope that you've already had lunch today because <laughs> yeah. some of these Victorian meals just sound, they just keep going. They keep going and going and going. Yes, and I and I love food in my personal life and also in my writing. So I, I <laughs> have written a lot about food. So this was a, this was a very apt choice. Great. <laughs> um, to make it a bit more difficult, all these clips are going to be narrated by Mary Jane Wells. So, so you're not going to be able to be tipped off by different voices uh, in these. So let's start with clip number one. Kathleen went to the sideboard, took a pair of silver tongs and began to heat bacon on a piece of toast. She placed another piece of toast on top, cut the sandwich neatly in two, and brought the plate to West. Eat this, she said. Lord Berwick always said that a bacon sandwich was the best cure for the morning after. Okay, so I I know because of the bacon sandwich, which book this is, <laughs> is um, it's um, it's Cold Hearted Rake, and the the reason that is, is correct. Thank you. And the reason um, I knew the bacon sandwich was the tip off is is because uh, West, who is the younger brother um, of uh, Devin Ravenel, who inherited this title, he's he's a mess. He's a he's a drunkard. He's always hungover, and so I went through a lot of actual historical resources, periodicals and things like that, and looked at bunches mm-hmm. of hangover remedies. Like, what do you eat the next morning? And 
more than once, and these were all from the 1870s, they all said bacon sandwich. So there you have it. Wow. I had never yeah, heard I'm, that one. I, so all you, all you people getting it. smashed while you're uh, <laughs> listening to this right now, uh, eat a bacon sandwich tomorrow if you remember that you listened to this. That is. Well, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing maybe the, the fat in, in the bacon and stuff, you know, some, sometimes that. Yeah, it's got to be all the grease, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, because I've heard that, like, um, what is that famous Mexican soup hangover cure, the minutia? I don't know. Okay. Okay. I don't know what that is. I got to look a, that up. I know. I actually really have to look it up. There, there's a Mexican <laughs> soup that is certainly famous in Texas for curing hangovers, and it's this big, hot, steaming bowl of you know fatty soup that supposedly cures you. So I don't know. But I'm, I'm too old to have a hangover, and I and I don't. I don't know if I want that soup anyway. So, oh, I'm gonna I'm gonna look that up. I'll get back to you and let you know yeah. how that tastes, <laughs> how it works. Okay, so let's uh, let's move on to clip number two. He had insisted on feeding her, patiently spooning beef tea or fruit ices or blancmange into her mouth. Blancmange, incidentally, had turned out to be a revelation. Everything she thought she'd disliked before, its mildness, its whiteness, and lack of texture turned out to be the best things about it. Okay, I have a lot of, okay, blancmange, which which is this kind of pasty white pudding, is in mm-hmm. a lot of my books because you always hear in historical romances that this is what they ate, you know, what, what invalids ate. Yeah. And I've, I have had more than a few invalid books. Um, <laughs> let me see. Um, okay, I'm going to guess Devil in Spring. That's some good guessing because that is correct. Oh, good. Two for two so far. Shall we move on to clip number three? Yes. Actually, actually, before we do that, have you have you ever had that pudding before? I finally made it because I had read about it so many times, and I was like, okay, I have to try it. I have to see if it's any good. It's actually really good. It's just like a vanilla type of custard, vanilla pudding, Mm -hmm. and um, you you make it in a mold and then you, you kind of flip it upside down and pull the top off. And then it's this really cute little thing. And uh, Victorians were huge on molded puddings and jellies and all sorts of, there's a lot of it looks really gross too, but they were, they were just huge on, on these molded things. So, um, my, yeah. my girlfriend has had me watch The Great British Baking Show a lot recently. So I feel like I've learned much more about Victorian desserts than I thought I ever would. <laughs> Uh, from that. Yeah. Well, you, one thing that impresses you about the Victorians is that they really made use of every little scrap. So nothing went to waste. Yeah. And there was a um, el- an element of um, pudding recipes that I kept reading about called icing glass. Have you ever heard of it? It's or no, icing glass. I S I N G and uh, icing glass. And it, it turns out that it's like gelatin you know, to thicken puddings or thicken soups, mm-hmm. only yeah. it's made from the fish skin. And oh, yeah. interesting. I know. Isn't that weird? And so then they would use it for, you know, for dessert jellies and for, for dinner jellies and molds and things like that. Yeah, but to they make used, things set. Yeah. yeah. I mean, what? who uses the fish skin nowadays? You know, we cook the fish and we throw it away. So I, I'm yeah. really impressed by the fact that they will use just everything. So, you know, probably a good example. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. All right, let's do clip number three. The variety of wares was staggering. Stacks of brown haddock fried in batter, 
pea soup crowded with chunks of salt pork, smoking hot potatoes split and doused with butter, oysters roasted in the shell, pickled whelks, and egg-sized suet dumplings heaped in wide, shallow bowls. Meat pasties had been made in half-circle shapes, convenient for hand-carrying. Dried red saveloy and polony sausages, cured tongue, and cuts of ham seamed with white fat were made into sandwiches called trotters. Okay, wait a minute. Here we go. Okay, I know because of the trotters, okay, I know what this was. Uh, it is from Hello Stranger, and the reason I know this is because... Um, that is correct as well. Tr- thank you, thank you. Trotters are basically uh, a sandwich that you bought at a street food stall, and then, you know, they'd make your little sandwich and then, you know, halfway wrap it up and give it to you, and then you would just trot away with it, I guess. And so the the reason I know it was Hello Stranger is because the book has a lot of nighttime scenes and a lot of outside scenes because he's a government agent, kind of an early Mm pre-James Bond type, and, and she's a doctor, so she's always making calls and going out late at night. And so because I couldn't really put these two in these, you know, elegant ballroom settings, I was like, how do I get them together for a romantic go on a date evening? Where would they go? What would they do? And then I read about all these um, night markets and night fairs that they would have where you'd have uh, food stalls, you would have people singing, um, magicians, and these food stalls had a really remarkable variety of food, as you can just hear from the description. Uh, Some of it actually sounded pretty darn good. Yeah, I'm incredibly hungry now. Like once this is over, I will be eating. And also th- those night markets sound way more fun than a ball anyway, to me at least. They do. They do because yeah. like I uh, I used to live in Massachusetts and we would go to um, Faneuil Hall in Boston where they have this huge mm-hmm. food market and it's, it's similar in that you oh, can just yes. go yeah. and have a little taste of about a thousand different things, which is the most fun. Yes. Uh, so we got one more clip. So okay. let's let's round it out. Let's see if you can get the perfect game All with right. clip number okay. four. Okay. Helen lifted the lid, her eyes widening as she discovered a treasure trove of caramels, jelly creams, candied fruit, toffees and marshmallow drops, all wrapped in twists of waxed paper. Her wondering gaze travelled to the nearby mountain of accumulating delicacies. A smoked Wiltshire ham and collar bacon, a box of dry-cured salmon, pots of imported Danish butter, tinned sweetbreads, and a sack of fat, glossed dates. Uh, okay, <laughs> first of all, I've written a lot about food. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Don't I know it now, uh, having got these clips. <laughs> okay, is it is it marrying Winterborn? Is that it? <laughs> Did I ruin my perfect score? Well, I hate to tell you that you got it absolutely correct. That it's a perfect score. Thank you. You are the most self-aware that you possibly can be. (laughs) But either that or I'm the hungriest now. I don't know. (laughs) I think I'm the hungriest now uh, after after doing this. Thank you for playing that game with us. I hope that was fun. That that was fun. It's... um, I don't know. I, I wonder. I've got to read some more historical romances and see if anyone else goes on for paragraphs and paragraphs about different kinds of food. I, I'm, I may be, I may be overdoing it. I don't yeah, know. You, you went on longer. <laughs> I cut these clips uh, in the middle of of paragraphs. There's even more food out there. Well, here's the thing. 
you know, when you're when you're writing these, and I and I know I've said emotional journey, but the thing is, I also <laughs> love just imagining like the what it would be lo- like, what it would taste like, what it would smell like. That I know I've gone on for paragraphs about what the air smells yeah. like in different parts of London, and so. To me, just knowing the little details of this is what a shirt cuff looked like or mm-hmm. these are all the snacks you would have at tea time, that to me just makes a book feel really real to you. So, you know, that's... I would say that hunger is a strong emotion to go on an emotional journey with. So I think you're okay on that I, front. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was everything that I had prepared. Uh, I always like to end by asking if there's anything I, I didn't ask you about that you'd like to bring up or anything else you'd like to say. Oh, thank you. Well, I, I'm trying to think if I've um, covered everything. I, I think so. I mean, I think um, hopefully I haven't done any answers that are so long that, you know, you'll have to cut me off in the middle of them. But, you know, yeah. No, no, you'll be fine. <laughs> okay. We went we went a little bit longer than I anticipated. So thank you for sticking it out and, and oh, yeah. being here for the whole time. Oh, I've enjoyed it a lot. It's been great. So, so thank you. It's I have been too. fun. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much for being on the show. Well, it's, it, thank you. I've really enjoyed it. It's too bad I'm not with you, and then we could go out and eat things. But Well, I don't know where time. I'm going to find. I mean, there's a lot of stuff you can find in New York City, but I don't know where I'm going to find that pudding. I might have to leave work early and go home and make it right now. So. <laughs> well, you could go out and get a sandwich somewhere, but just don't say that it's a trotter or people will look at you. Yeah, weird. I'll get a bacon sandwich. They'll look at me, <laughs> yeah. but they'll know what's about to happen. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Well, if you ever do tie one on and have one too many, then you'll know how to fix it now. You're welcome. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. Thanks again to Lisa. Her new novel, Devil's Daughter, read by Mary Jane Wells, is on sale now wherever you get your audiobooks. Speaking of Mary Jane Wells, it's now time to get to our interview with her. Mary was a pleasure to talk to. She's funny, insightful. She plays the accordion. Don't worry, we will absolutely cover that. Here's Mary Jane Wells. So how did you get into the field of voicing over for audiobooks? Oh, the audiobook part of things was my friend Alex Hyde-White. He got into it and he started up his own audiobook company called Punch Audio. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know anything about it. And he sort of took me under his wing and he, uh, I, I started off doing lots of the sort of um, B books he had. You know, he would have really quite... Um, lauded narrators do stuff and then I was doing the stuff which wasn't maybe as popular or didn't really need a famous person for it sort of thing and um, and he was great I, we worked solidly for about a year and and I did a bit of voice direction as well with um, Hayley Mills mm-hmm. and um, and then I started to get work in with other people too so I still work with Alex when I'm back in LA because he's there most of the time but um, yeah yeah, that's that's how I started, and he gave me a he gave me a leg up, like Alex a lot. Mm-hmm. So you you came into it from a a traditional acting background, is that correct? Yeah, I was a theater actor for many years. Then came to LA in two thousand and well, I came to Hawaii first, did a year. Oh, in, that's in much Re- better. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's got to do it, Andrew. Taking mm-hmm. one for the team. Um, <laughs> yeah, I went there and I was in, working in theater for a year. 
And then uh, because I'd got the visa to do that, I thought, well, I might as well go to L.A., see what's happening for TV. Went to L.A., went to LA uh, stayed in L.A. for a couple of years doing quite an awful TV, most of it. <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple of things I'm really proud of, like my friend's thing called Define White. I love that. Such a lot. Such a great fun. Um, but, you know, a lot of it was a bit like, I don't know. As an actor, you're a bit like, well... You know, I've done all this training. I've got some stuff inside me. I think I'm all right. Mm-hmm. You know, I can do the job. And then you end up saying, I think I'm going to be sick and rushing off stage. <laughs> There's only one line. So, so yeah, actually, I found the move into voiceover was really because acting broke my heart a bit. Yeah. Poor me. You know, it's been I very understand. good. Yeah. I hear it. I, I have a friend who I'm going to embarrass a bit on this now who is oh, a, a working actor. And... Uh, she keeps getting booked in commercials where she is a like mother to small children and she does not like kids. Isn't really like the age of someone who has kids as old as the kids that she's with in the commercials. And she's like, I don't understand it, but I'm not going to speak out against it if I keep getting cast. So I I guess it (laughs) it comes with some really strange. Yeah. It does throw weird ones your way Mm -hmm. for the work I've done. I get a lot of, um, I think it's really important though, I don't mind this at all, a lot of people send me work about sexual assault because I have championed that with a survivor and made her story into a play, you know, but it does mean after a while, I really want to do a stupid play about unicorns and farts. It would be great to do something light and silly (laughs) and completely entertaining and doesn't involve anything dark or serious at all because otherwise it just gets too much, you know. You're doing that one show and that's it, you know, for Mm -hmm. a while. So then you walk into your agent's office and you say, uh, give me everything with unicorns and farts in it? Is yeah. that a deep oh, list? Yes. <laughs> sure. No, I'm at the stage where I take what I'm given and I just pray. <laughs> I pray above the agent is God and then mm-hmm. there's the agent and then there's me somewhere going, uh, hello, hello. Um, so, uh, no, I, 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 I speak to above and say, listen, it's time to just pad things out with some ridiculous <laughs> comedy. Just, I'm waiting for you to just serve it up now. It's time. Mm-hmm. So you had a lot of traditional acting training. So when you stepped into the narrating booth, uh, did you think like this was going to be a breeze? And was there there's some things you had to kind of unlearn uh, mm. to to transition to that kind of acting? Well, I think I think it's definitely the same thing. You're definitely it's a performance. You're you're acting, um, but there's a certain freedom to it. Uh, well, first of all, your body has to be very still. And actually, generally speaking, in theatre, if you're not being embodied, everything's coming from the neck up and it's not very interesting. So in voiceover, it's much more of a challenge to be embodied when you have to be not moving at all. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, and I think the theatre training is is probably why that I have had some great luck with audiobooks and why they've asked me to come back because they've said, oh, we hear the different characters in you sort of thing. Because I'm, oh God, it sounds so poncy at my process. Uh, (laughs) I am imagining those people and an essence of them as, you know, just as you do as you read a book. So uh, it's fun for me to do, like, to let all those people um, through me, you know. I I think the, it's actually in some ways not as exacting as theatre acting, but mm-hmm. you've got to make sure all the tech side of it is right. And 
when I started off, I was very lucky. Alex, oh, there was always an engineer. I could breeze in, do all the stuff, and then go home. Whereas now, of course, I have to make sure that audio is correct and all the rest of it. Yeah. And that's intimidating. You know, I'm not an editor. Um, <laughs> I still don't know how to master things. I'm very glad to have editors who are kind enough to sort of give me tweaks and let me know, well, oh, that sounds like this, and this is what you need to do, and all that stuff. That's... It's more that that is the learning curve, mm-hmm. I think, about voiceover. I'm very glad to have found it because it's the it's the very nice husband to the shit boyfriend that acting is. <laughs> That's an amazing analogy that I'm <laughs> going to use from now on. Yeah, um, well, a yeah. friend of mine once said, I think, especially stage acting, when I was in London, she was like, God, looking at you going through this, like a job comes up and it's like a boyfriend who you've really, really wanted to be called by. Mm-hmm. And he's slept with everybody else, and he's called everybody else, and he finally shows up on your door, and you're like, come in. <laughs> you fucking hate it at the same time. So, so voice, you know, voiceover, very different, dealing with a different clientele and a different kind of, you know, difference between uh, professional sort of conduct even. You know, people will get, get back to you and say, thanks for your audition. Oh my yeah. God, that was a surprise when you're used to TV acting or theater, you know. They just never get back to you. No, they don't have, in theater, they don't have the resource to do that. Mm-hmm. In TV, they just should. It's a bit rude. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, they don't want me. I don't want them. <laughs> exactly. You're better for it. There we um, go. So looking at your list of titles that you've narrated before, you see a lot of romance in there and particularly a lot of Regency romance. Um, so is there a trick to narrating that particular genre? Gosh, I'm, I am very flattered that you think I might know. I know, <laughs> I know, I've, I know I've narrated a few of them. Um, but I think I've just been lucky in that I've enjoyed being the people in them. Um, I guess... I'm a Brit, and many of them are American writers writing about a rather nostalgic period in British history mm-hmm. that absorbs some fascination. And moving in between the register of the sort of Downton Abbey upstairs, downstairs, the yeah. different sects of people. And um, I think some of it is also to do with the years I spent in Scotland. I've been able to pull off, thank you, Scotland, mm-hmm. uh, a, uh, an acceptable Scottish accent. And my mother was Irish, so I've got that side. So I can blend those accents in normally without any authenticity problems. Um, it's If you start to ask me to do a Boston accent, I'm like, dude, I'm sorry. I'm out of here. <laughs> oh, well, that's great because my next question was going to be, can you do a Boston accent for us? Oh, so. oh well, that was answered. <laughs> yeah, Harvard Yard. No, yeah, park, park the, the car in Harvard Yard. Yeah, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Anyone listening in Boston right now is just cringing really, uh, really uh, extensively yeah, as they drink their Dunkin' Donuts. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> Hello, uh, what was it? Cultural stereotypes, anybody? Yep, yeah, we're both here. Come right on in. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Um, are, are there any misconceptions that people have about romance narrators or maybe even from other narrators who maybe don't do romance books? Um, I haven't come across any. Nobody has been rude enough to say anything to my face. <laughs> <laughs> what I do find is it's a very loyal following. And what's interesting is, you know, you could level the charge at romance audiobooks that we are peddling in stereotypes a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. But what I have noticed is there's a real effort to make sure things are a bit more LGBT friendly, a bit more um, 
not-so-white privilege, perhaps? I mean, we're dealing yeah. with, I mean, a lot of the time it is a difficult, cr- tricky question to look at because the period in question is usually extremely white, you know, the, yeah. the where they're dealing with and who they're dealing with. But, um, they're, you know, to make it accessible for everybody and to c- include everybody in it is something what I, that I'm noticing in the genre, and I think that's exciting. Yeah, I've noticed it too, that it is a, a more progressive uh, genre willing to take a lot more risks. I don't know if that's because it has a lot more very specific subgenres in it uh, compared oh, to other yeah. genres, or I don't know. I don't know what it is about about romance in general, but yeah, people seem to be open to everything there. Yeah. Yeah, they are. I suppose it's because we're getting into that, the ir- something very... It, there's something so interior about it, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of my ability to potentially fantasize about somebody <laughs> I'm attracted to or something. You know, good God, it's lucky he never finds out just how much <laughs> has gone on in the head before anything ever happens. But then I don't think I'm alone in that. I don't think that's also an exclusively female thing too. Mm-hmm. But tapping into that area is a, a rich seam of creativity and imagination and that's also why I think romance feeds that, because you get to find out that you're not just a nerd, you know, alone, <laughs> thinking these things, um, and that other people are like, oh, and what if this happened? And, ooh, you know, and it's the will they, won't they that goes on for ages, you know. Um, so, yeah, it, it has it has a lot of subgenres, I think, because there's as many different genres as there are people, really. That's a really nice way to put that too. You're just you're you're a you're full of amazing phrases so far and, wow. and great sound bites. So Thank you. No pressure, the, but keep it up. Yeah, <laughs> it has to be this carrot soup, Andrew. Um, <laughs> I highly recommend it. Covent Garden soup, lovely. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna try and get them to be a sponsor now in between segments <laughs> of the show. Um, oh my god, rumbled. Yeah, busted. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we were trying to do all along, listeners. I promise it wasn't. You get a cease and desist from them. Be like, take out that mention of our soup. Oh, um, yeah. Do you have any white whales in terms of audiobook narration? So, like, something that you'd like to try but you haven't, or maybe an author or a book from the past that you'd like to take a crack at? Oh, yeah. There's loads of those. There's loads of those. I think, well, I love doing Mansfield Park. I have mm-hmm. to say, doing a bit Jane Austen and really, it's it's challenging because the sentences are so long. You do have to prep um, particularly for it. And there's more mistakes because you realize halfway through the sentence, oh, that's what she meant. I have to go back and redo it. <laughs> um, but wait, weighty fiction, political fiction, I'd love to do more of that, you know. But I suppose my natural energy or whatever is suited to jumping in and out of characters more. Mm-hmm. Um so I don't know if that, you know, it's, it hasn't come my way. And I think if people Google me, they go, oh, she's that romance chick. Never mind. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'd love it to mean at some point that I could do everything. Um, I remember once working with Mosaic Audio and there was a teen fiction series we were doing, which I loved. And um, <laughs> we needed to come up with a sort of almost science fictiony noise for a creature under the sea. So we did mm-hmm. this. <laughs> <laughs> so, so anything that's playful, I think, anything that's playful mm-hmm. and involves, because I think authors so far have been very lucky. The choices that I've made, they have been like, oh, good, jump in more. Yeah. You know, <laughs> when I listen to audiobooks, I wish that they would do that and not hold back so much. Mm-hmm. 
<clears throat> but it's very it's all a question of taste, really. So for any and all of the aspiring narrators out there, um, what advice do you have for them on how to break into the business or how to to better build their voice as an instrument? Gosh. Well, I like the idea of ongoing training, but only so much that you know you're dealing with somebody who respects your personhood and you as an artist. Because I could say, yeah, get out there and train. But it's a very, very mixed landscape. <laughs> and I was lucky. I would. I do think drama school training is fantastic because mm-hmm. you're immersed for three years. And um, I think European training, I, I like, you know, American training is great too, but I'm, I'm very dubious about a lot of teachers in L.A., I mm-hmm. like Diana Castle. She's my jam. And her teacher, Feline England, is fantastic. They're doing it for the right reasons. But even very lauded, um, grounded, experienced actors sometimes contact me and go over there and say, you know, who should I train with? And I'm like, oh, it's super personal. But mm-hmm. they've had experiences that feel like they're just dealing with giant narcissists, <laughs> egos, and just Hollywood weirdness, all strange illusions of power and stuff. And voice is a very tender instrument. It is a barometer for where you are as a person. And I think it is a spiritual craft. I really do. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, So really work with somebody who is not an arse and who knows their stuff and and trust your gut. Um, Trust your gut, especially because your money is going to be behind it as well. The person who taught me voice is called Nadine George and Mm -hmm. she is a super duper master at it. And she went to train with Roy Hart for years. And then once she left the Roy Hart Theatre Collective in, I think, the 60s or 70s, she then went to Birmingham University and was paid to do a research into actors Shakespeare and his voice technique for eight years before she then went on to teach her own version of that. And now she's in her 70s and she does... um, voice workshops in London and she doesn't advertise they're full of Swedish Danish and uh, British actors and the occasional American who's found out about it we get one in there great that's right (laughs) but it's so on the down low nobody would normally ever hear about it but I recommend her I think she's great there's also where I trained in Scotland there there's a very good voice department there and it's called Centre for Voice in in Performance they do a lot of Mm -hmm. research they have a professor emeritus called Roz Steen and she still does the same Nadine George voice technique. And all the, the actors actually coming out of that institution are all trained in it. It's a very embodied technique. And it's a technique which really explores the entire range of what you're humanly capable of. But it changes you as a person as well. It's a profound thing. So I would say go for what you know to um, excite you and change you and get that training in your body so that when you come to have to squash it all down in a voice booth, <laughs> you can you can rely on it, and and it's fun as well. That nobody has tried to break you down and mm-hmm. um, be sort of personally abusive, which seems to pass <laughs> for work in a lot of environments. Mm-hmm. Um, That's a fantastic answer to to give us that many like very specific options to go to. I hope all the people listening were taking notes and are now googling and trying to get with those teachers. Um, So I have another question to ask you, and this is maybe the most important question that I've ever asked anybody ever in an interview. Uh, Drum roll, Andrew. Here it comes. So on your website bio, 
it says that you, quote, play the accordion badly but with gusto, end quote. <laughs> Could you uh, just walk me through all of that and how that finds its way into your bio? <laughs> I love the way he said, could you? You walk me through that. So respectful yeah. and polite. <laughs> it's actually you going, the hell are you talking about, woman? Um, well, yeah, that's basically what I was saying, yeah. <laughs> so I was in between acting jobs in Scotland and went into a charity shop and went, oh, look at that beautiful old accordion, how much do you want for it? And he was like, oh, 20 quid. I was like, great. Wow. I feel Learned like that's how to pretty play cheap it. for an instrument like that. You right? should see the shop. It's like it's like somebody's <laughs> turned it upside down and then on its side and then just put it back and gone. It's open. <laughs> it's just full of stuff. And I and I know some some there's some absolute gems in there. You know, there's ye olde Star Wars figures from the first thingy. You know, oh, yeah. th- there's iterations of old gramophones in there that are probably beautiful antiques. He's got an eye for a really for a curio. And anyway, he found this and nobody hadn't shifted for ages. And I think I was the person to ask when he just was like, oh God, I've got to get rid of some stuff. <laughs> um, so I, I bought it and then I learned sort of how to play it. And then I went up for a job at the Lyceum mm-hmm. and uh, I wrote them a song because I couldn't, pl- I couldn't say, if somebody went, hey, Stairway to Heaven, I'd be like, okay, uh. give me three years and I'll come back. <laughs> but actually what I could do was I could do something in a C major that moved mm-hmm. uh, moved around and transposed a bit and I put lyrics to that. So they went, oh, she's amazing. She wrote us a song <laughs> and she can play it. And then I started the job and I was like, yeah, <laughs> I didn't tell you that was all I could play, <laughs> but you're stuck with me now. So um, it was very useful because in any touring show, um, you are basically wearing your instrument and it's not a huge faff to bring with you. Mm-hmm. Um, it made me more employable. There was many jobs I got, I think, that the accordion got because it was prettier. <laughs> yeah, it did get you in the door where they're looking at who to call back for an audition and they're like, what about the accordion lady? Just because yeah. they remember the lady with the accordion. That's it. And wow. a lot of people play the violin or piano mm-hmm. and they play them amazingly well. I play both those instruments Badly, but with gusto. <laughs> but if you play an accordion badly with gusto, it's loud, the mm-hmm. chords are already there, and you can get away with it for long enough to impress, and then you just have to put it down and then do something else um, <laughs> before they rumble you and realize that you can't play Stairway to Heaven. <laughs> um, so we don't let anybody come on this show without them playing a game. So okay. now we've reached the game portion. Um I don't know if you're aware of this, that in the state of New York, there are standardized tests that all the students have to take called the Regents. Oh, Um, no, I wasn't aware. Well, great. Uh, So as someone who narrates a lot of Regency romance titles, you are aware that the characters in them in that period have a language all of their own. So today, we're going to test your knowledge of old-timey vernacular And hopefully, we'll all come out of this with some new phraseology for our everyday lives. So, Mary Jane, are you ready to take your Regency exams? Yes, I am. (laughs) Hit me with it. Here here are the rules. Uh, So, we're going to hit you with five phrases frequently found in Regency romance. And you're going to tell us what they mean. Uh, To make (laughs) it a little easier, we are going to give you options, you know, A, B, and C. Uh, So, at the end, we'll see how you did. We're going to assign you a letter grade. We'll see if you pass. Okay, Um, great. So here's number one. So in a Regency romance, if you're asked if you'd like some Adam's Ale to drink, what are you being offered? 
A, apple cider, B, cold tea, or C, water? Apple cider. Oh, no, I'm afraid that the answer <laughs> that is, is water on that one. Adam's ale is water? Really? Yeah. Uh, I've, I've had a few different... I'm not just making this up to try to fool yeah, you. Yeah, no. I yeah. you've researched it. I've had a few different Damn things you. I've researched. Uh, one of our producers, uh, Suzanne Mitchell, gave me a lot of these as well. Yeah, mm. the Adam's ale, uh, from what I gather, the term comes from the idea that um, Adam and Eve in the Bible, that that's all that they would have to drink is water because nothing else had been invented yet. So oh, I see. Why does it not get called Eve's ale then? Why does it yeah. get named after him? He had all the ribs and everything. Well, that would that would be like apple juice, I feel like, for <laughs> Eve with the, the apple and everything. Right. Now I've exhausted I all I know about the Bible. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> so that's that, okay. Yeah. Over so, one. Um, <laughs> so one so, down. Okay. <laughs> right. <clears throat> Not doing so number great. Number two, you got a lot of time to recover. Don't worry. So uh, number two, if a potential suitor was said to be corny-faced, what kind of features would they have? Would they have a an abundance of freckles, b a plethora of acne, or c a number of missing teeth? Oh. Any way you answer this, what a mean phrase to use uh, to talk about someone. <laughs> I think it's pimples. I'm pretty sure it's acne, corny-faced. You are correct. You're on the board. Yes, corny-faced being uh, red-faced, full of pimples. I guess that look like corn kernels. Could also be used to uh, talk about someone who is really, really drunk. Oh, really? (laughs) They're so drunk, they're face down in a barrel of corn. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) well, they're just like, oh, I really, I, there's no kebabs because it's, you know, it's circa 19th century. I know. Mm-hmm. I'll put some sweet corn on. <laughs> just get out of my face on sweet corn. Right. I found myself there many a time. Um, <laughs> it happens to the best of us. Yep. Okay, so moving on to number three. This mm-hmm. one, I think I think you're going to know the answer. Not No pressure, but I think you're going to get this one. Okay. If you are being pursued by the Bow Street Runners. Who or what are pursuing you? A, a small brigade of police detectives. B, a flock of ravenous and interested members of the opposite sex. Or C, a notorious street gang full of young, low-class thieves. It's the first. It There's is six the coppers. first. Yeah. Yeah. So do you happen to know where like the, this term came from? Is there a literal Bow Street? Oh, yeah, there's a magistrate's court. It's something to do with an author, and I'm not sure why or how I know that. <laughs> but it was founded by somebody, and the Bow Street is a magistrate's court, so it's probably the guy mm-hmm. who's a magistrate. I think magistrate. it was looking now at some late Googling. I think it was it Henry Fielding. Does that sound right? Oh, oh, you're on Google. Why, why didn't I do that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't get any ideas to yeah. cheat here. Um, um, if you're taking a long time to answer, if I hear some clickety clack, I'll know what's going on. <laughs> That's right. Oops, <coughs> I'll cough a bit. Um, Henry Fielding? No, I didn't know that. So, yeah. huh. I mean, I don't know if that's true. That's just the first thing that came up when I googled. So you've got two right now. Uh, you might get a good grade here. We got two left to go. So, um, number four. So let's say that you've been thrown out of an establishment for having a pair of what might be called 
dispatchers or fulhams or doctors. Uh, they have many names, but you've been caught with them. What establishment were you thrown out of? Oh. Is this A, a church, B, a brothel, or C, a casino? Wow, Fulham's. Fulham's. I don't know what Fulham's are. It sounds like the Irish word for film. Fulham's. Um, <laughs> well, it's, it's spelled the same way as the place. Oh, it is? If that oh. helps at all. Huh. Dispatchers, Fulham's. And it was a brothel, a casino, or a church. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say a brothel. It is a casino, oh, actually. So correct. those are all terms for loaded dice. Oh, wow. And there were a bunch of other terms uh, for it, too, that I didn't pick. Those are just the three that I went with. Apparently, uh, loaded dice was a problem in that time period. I feel like I don't see anyone with loaded dice in their pockets anymore, but there were a lot of terms for it. Um, apparently... In Fulham was where a lot of this underground gambling was happening. Uh, hmm. So that is how it got that name. I'm not oh. sure where Dispatchers or Doctors comes from, though. Yeah. Okay. And they're, they're mm-hmm. referring to the people who keep those loaded dice. That's what you I, were called. I think that it's the name of the dice themselves. Oh, I see. <laughs> yeah. So I walk into the casino with my Dispatchers and uh, play some craps, I guess. <laughs> it's good to have a couple goes. of Doctors with you at all times. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> the doctors, I guess, make sense because they, they doctor the results, uh, yeah. you know. Yeah. Uh, but maybe I'm just making that up. Um, so we're two for two, mm-hmm. or we, we have two wins, two losses so far. Okay. So this oh, is going to be someone. determining whether you pass or not, oh, whether you get a passing grade on your exam. So um, it all comes down to this. Right. Number five. If you obtained... A special license. What could you do with that special license? A. Wed at any time or place. B. Demand an eatery or tavern kick out all of their patrons except for you. Or C. Gain access to the medical and financial records of any person in town. This is to do with the period that we're talking yes. about. The Regency period. Yes, yes. So it would give you either a dispensation to marry whoever you wanted, was that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's not It's not to marry whoever you want, but you oh, could no. marry at any time or at any place. Okay. I think it's about marriage because that is very much a concern of everybody around there. Bans, lifting the bans and all that stuff. So I think it's to do with that. <gasps> sure. Yes! <sighs> well... It looks like you're going to pass your exams. That is correct. It is a special <laughs> license. Allows you to wed at any time or at any place. Um, apparently, if you didn't have one of these, you had to uh, marry in a church between the hours of 8 a.m. and noon. So a real early wedding. Ooh. And uh, you had to also be a member of that church for a certain number of time prior to the wedding. So the special license, though, you can kind of do whatever you want. We don't know how lucky we have it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine uh, if I got an invitation f- to a wedding that was at 8 a.m., no matter how close I am to those people, I'm probably not going to be attending, I feel like. <laughs> yeah, you'll turn up for the lunch buffet when I'm, yeah. you know, corny-faced. Um, <laughs> but 
But yeah, with, with my doctors waiting to waiting to uh, to gamble with people there. That's yeah. right. Oh, we know which character you'd play in these Regency romances. <laughs> you'd be the cad, the irredeemable I cad. I would. <laughs> My secret is out now. Thank Very you for good. playing the game there. I hope yeah. that that was fun for you. I can't you. believe I passed. That was a, that was tricky. Yeah, those were not easy <laughs> questions. I thought you were going to say, "What's a handsome cab or something?" Or, no, I, don't know, I had, a, I, had a, I had a list of about five thousand of terms uh, to go through. Phaeton almost made the list, actually. So oh. that would have been too easy for you. I feel like. Oh um, well. Not, until you got me on the actual quiz, you thought it would be too easy for me. <laughs> <laughs> you could have rested just where you were. In fact, mm-hmm. you probably found that out. Um, well, Mary Jane Wells, thank you again for your time and for being on the show today. I hope to have you on again so I can go through the other 5,000 terms to, to quiz you on. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Perfect. <laughs> I'm, I'm there. Thank you very much for having me, Andrew. And yeah. It's been great fun. You can listen to all of the audiobooks Mary has read wherever you get your audiobooks. Also, Mary wrote and stars in a one-woman show titled Heroin, which will start a U.S. tour in 2020. For more details on that, go to H-E-R-O-I-N-E, theplay.com. We hope you enjoyed listening. And if you did, why not search Harper Audio Presents in whatever podcast app you're using and hit the subscribe button. Better yet, write a review while you're there. It would help us out a lot. Thank you again for listening. We'll be back soon with more forays into the wide world of audiobooks.